phrase, and not that of works, 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 works. Um, but, uh, and uh, what he basically did was he spearheaded his drive that we know as the Reformation or the Age of Enlightenment. And the problem at the time was the established church had uh, basically come up with the, the teaching that it was by works that we're saved, it would be by works that we would enter into favor before God. And it would, by, it would be by works that somehow or another we would know whether or not we were good enough to get into heaven. Well, the problem was that when Martin Luther came up with what we know as the 95 Thesis, or here was a Catholic monk who was looking at what the tradition of the established church was, and he was comparing it to what was being taught in the Bible, and he said, you know, I've got a problem here. There are 95 things that I see that contradict between what the Bible teaches and what the church is teaching in the areas where it pertains to works and grace and salvation. So he had a thing that he called the 95 Thesis. He nailed it on the door of the Wittenberg Church to debate the Catholic Church, and then entered into the whole age of enlightenment or the age of reformation. The problem that we have with that, Zane, Zane Hodges, who's a professor of theology at Dallas Seminary, wrote this in his book, it's called Grace and Eclipse. He warns that in our quest to ensure that there's no confusion over the necessity of grace to enter the kingdom of God, that we have all but ignored the whole area of works subsequent to salvation and their performance, and the rewards that are promised by God to those who faithfully serve Him. So we've gone, as often as the case, whenever there is an error in doctrine, we go from one extreme, and the pendulum switches all the way to the other extreme. So the questions that we're going to address in this series on rewards are simple questions like, is the promise of a future reward biblical? Will the person who's saved by grace ever have to enter into judgment before God? Is our appearance before him something to fear or something that we should look forward to? Those are the questions that we'll look at. But the thing that I want to deal with as an introduction is why is it that we go from one extreme always to the other? We've gone from the extreme of teaching that it's by works that we're going to find favor with God. And we find out, no, it's not by works, but it's by, by our faith. It's God's grace that we'll be saved, not of works. So we go from one extreme to the other. And so what we've done is we've all but eliminated the teaching of why it's important to live with lives that are pleasing to God after we enter into a relationship with Him through Christ. You follow what I'm saying? No one teaches it. No one talks about it. No one has anything to do with it. Why? Because we don't want to confuse people that it's by God's grace and God's grace alone through our faith that we enter into this relationship with Him. It's not by works, it's a gift of God, unless anyone of us would go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? So what we do is we totally ignore the whole area of works. We don't want to talk about works because we're going to confuse too many people. And it's easy to see why we ignore it. I ran into an article um, in the Desert Sun down in Palm Springs. You may have read this. This is fascinating. I'll just throw some of the, the highlights, so to speak, out. But it's on the, the um, beatification of Father Nipero Serra. Did you read that in favor? A couple of things I thought were interesting. It says, uh, Father Serra was praised by the church for founding California's missions and reviled by descendants of Indians he's accused of abusing. He takes a step closer to becoming a saint on Sunday when he's beatified by the Pope in Rome. Um, goes on to say that there's a delegation of about 100 people who are going to Rome. They'll make their formal plea for beatification uh, to the Pope during the ceremony. He was diagnosed in 1960 with fatal ailment called lupus. 
she recovered from the incurable affliction after she and others in her order prayed to Sarah for help. So now, Sarah needs just one more verified miracle to qualify for sainthood. But, the article goes, that won't be easy. The next miracle must take place after Sunday's three-hour Vatican Mass. After the beatification, Galvin said, then you can go directly and ask Sarah to ask God to cure these people. So two who hope that, miracle, that this miracle will take place and hope for his intercession and that it will save their lives were on hand for the beatification ceremony. Uh, Brandon O'Work from, San, from uh, San Francisco was there and uh, Sister Ann Claire from Mission San Jose were there, both of them having curable diseases and they're hoping that um, Sarah's next miracle will be to, to cure them. Now the last article, and the last paragraph is what I want to share with you more than anything else. It says, becoming a saint obviously is not an overnight event. <laughs> but um, it says, but some take longer than others to reach sainthood. It took the church 1134 years to anoint the Venerable Bede, an English monk who died in 735. On the other hand, St. Francis of Assisi was canonized in 1228, just two years after his death. You know, you read something like this, and it's no wonder that we just want to make sure that nobody misunderstands what the Bible teaches in the way of salvation, that it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of works, it's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast, because you read something like that and you go, becoming a saint is not an easy experience. It's not an overnight thing, it's not, you know, it's a difficult thing at best. And so what we want to do is, let's go from one extreme to the other. That is bizarre, so we'll go all the way to the other side and we'll just camp on the fact that it's just by grace we're saved through faith. Let's not talk about works. Let's not talk about the importance of works. Let's not talk about why it's important to live a life that's pleasing to God after we become Christians. So the world looks at those of us who call ourselves Christians and we're doing all the same things that the world is doing and they say, well, if that's what a Christian is, I must be one too because I do all the same things. Right? I've heard that logic used when they talk to people that I know and say, if this guy's a Christian, I must be a Christian because I drink, cheat, run around, and steal, and do all these things too. So we're all in one big lump sum together here. And you go, gee, that's great. Another area that I've seen that's been a real problem for me is in the area of, of dealing with um, Mary, the mother of our Lord. See, that same established church has, has put her up on a pedestal that equals that of Jesus Christ. She is an intercessor. She is uh, someone who sits before God and intercesses on our behalf is the teaching of the established church. So what the Protestant movement has done is they've come along and said, we don't want to confuse anybody on the issue of Mary, so we are just going to hold her in great contempt, or we're going to degrade her as much as possible, or we're not going to look at it in the light of what God teaches. And so we, we basically trample on her and trample on the importance of her as an example to all of us in the area of someone who is a humble servant, who is obedient to God, answers the call of God in her life, and what a tremendous example that is for all of us to look at her life and say, you know what, there are a lot of good things that we can learn from the life of Mary as a humble servant of God who was obedient to God and lived a life that was pleasing to God, but because this over here teaches that she's on the same level with Jesus Christ, what we've got to do now is just knock her down and not learn anything from it so no one's confused about her role. You know, Jesus never had a problem with her role. Jesus never held her in contempt. Jesus never found it necessary to degradate her in front of the crowds that followed him. Jesus always held her in high esteem. 
We know that in Luke 2.52 it says that he subjected himself to her and to Joseph and to the teachings of their family. We also know that the very last, one of the very last acts before Jesus died was the act of taking care of his mother in the care of John. And he said, uh, John, behold your mother. And he, and he told her, behold your son. And he took care of her. He loved her. He cared for her. He never degradated her. He wasn't threatened by what her position was in his life. He certainly wasn't threatened by what the established church would begin to teach about her because he knew that the truth would be known if we just taught it. So what we're here this morning to do is to teach the truth about the importance of works subsequent to salvation. Mary herself understood her role. If you look at Luke chapter 1, you'll see that Mary said that she was a humble servant of God. Blessed was she for she had saw her Savior. She knew she needed a Savior. She recognized God's workings in her life. And she was never at a point where she confused her role with the role of any other person of that day. One of the crowd, as Jesus was teaching one day, there's a big crowd, a massive crowd, and Jesus' uh, mother and brothers were at, the very, uh, were at the very back of this crowd. And one of the members of the crowd in the front said, do you know that your mother and your brothers are way in the back and they can't get up to the front? You know what Jesus said? Who are my mother and my brothers, but all who obey the will of God? Another time a crowd shouted out, a woman shouted out, and she said, Blessed are you, or blessed is the woman who, whose breast you were fed upon. And Jesus said, No, I say to you, contrary to this, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. See, Jesus wasn't threatened by Mary's position, but he taught the truth. So we're not going to be threatened by the position of an established church that taught that works were the important thing to save as much as we are going to teach the truth about the importance of works subsequent to salvation. You follow me? Okay, you know, we need to do that. We're not going to digress. In fact, look at Titus chapter 3 for a moment. We're not going to digress. Please don't misunderstand anything here. We are not going to digress from the truth of what the Bible teaches as far as the area of uh, grace is concerned, as far as how we're saved, as far as what works are all about afterwards. But if you turn to Titus chapter 3, and look at verse 5. This is still equally true today as it was then, and it will continue to be equally true. In verse 5 we read, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, who He poured out richly upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Turn back to 2 Timothy, chapter 1. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, look at verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. What? not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. The Bible is very clear. We will never be saved. We will never be pleasing to God the way that we live our life aside from the faith that we can put in to the act of Jesus Christ dying for your sins, raising from the dead, and because He lives, we live if we put our faith and trust in that. Not by works, but according to God's mercy. Alright? So we're not going to digress from that as a truth at all. That is the foundation for which we need to build upon. 
because the problem is we're putting the cart before the horse. If I start to tell you how important it is for you and I to live lives that are pleasing to God, that we need to do good works, that God promises rewards, if I start on that basis, then I put the cart before the horse and we go right back to the teaching of 500 years ago that says, keep trying as hard as you can, someday you may please God, and then someday you got a shot at heaven. That's not true at all. What I'm saying is, put your faith and trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ. What Christ did on the cross is equally valid for today. You trust in Him. That's how we enter into relationship with God. That's how the Bible says that we're saved. And that is the basis then where now we start, well, now how do we live a life that's pleasing to God? You follow me? So let's make the assumption that for a moment, all of us are on the track that said we put our trust in Christ and now we need to live a life that's pleasing to God, not because that's going to be what gets us into heaven, but because that's what we want to do out of love and obedience for what He teaches. So we'll move on from there. So that's where we're at. So as we look at this series, we're going to look at rewards. And um, let me know if we need to shut the lights. If not, we'll leave it on. We're going to look at rewards as far as our potential. Is that clear? Okay. As far as what our potential is in the kingdom of God. And the problem is, it's exactly that. Rewards, as it's taught by the Bible, is a potential for every person who's put their trust in Christ. It is not a guarantee. There are many things in the Bible that you can read that you're guaranteed once you put your faith in Christ. We're guaranteed that we will be blameless before God. We get, we're guaranteed we will be righteous before God. We are guaranteed that uh, there will be no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There are many things positionally that are guaranteed to us once we simply put our faith and trust in Christ. But as far as the teaching of rewards are concerned, there is nothing that's guaranteed in the area of rewards it's all determined by our performance, not by our position. See, that's going to make a lot of us upset. We're not going to like this a whole bunch. But the problem is that that is the truth of what the Bible teaches, and we're going to take a look at it. Now, the thing is, as we sit here this morning, basically we're sitting here under two premises, right? The first premise is that how you live today will be determined by what you believe about tomorrow. And the second is that how you live tomorrow will be determined by what you did about it today. Let me give you some examples. If you knew, for, exa for example, well, let me do this. You got a piece of paper? Got a piece of paper? Grab out a piece of paper. Piece of paper. This is going to be a tough exercise, but I think that I'll give you the first half of the equation. You got to fill in the second half. Okay, you ready? Come on, let's go. Everybody play along. Let's not be party poopers here. This is your chance to be involved. Okay, you got a piece of paper? Write this number down. Men, you ready? Write down this number. All the men, just the men, yes. Just the men, follow directions, it's very important. <laughs> men, write down this number, number 70. Write down number 70. Write a 70 down there, you got it? This is pretty easy so far, isn't it? Women, women, write down 77. 77. Okay, now look at the person next to you, make sure they got it right. In case there's any confusion, there may be some after last night's our female impersonator. You're probably real confused this morning. What should I write down? Um, but, but somebody help Harley out. Hey, um, okay, men write down number 70, women 77. Okay, now you can't look anymore. You ready? Now, I want you to write down under that your age. Whoa! I hear someone going, oh! Who, who, you're looking at your neighbor. I saw that. That's a scary thing, isn't it? This whole time, though, don't look at your neighbor. Don't look at your neighbor. You can check their... Now, now that's it. 
Now, I know you're all dying to do this. Now, pass the favor to your left, and we'll all check each other's answers. No, we won't do that. Okay, you got it down? You got your age down underneath that? No? Come on. Come on. Loosen up a little bit, huh? This is really important. Well, then we'll just... How old do you think she is? We'll just... We'll, 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 we'll plug in one for you. You're going to write it down now, aren't you? Yeah, I know. Okay, you got it? Now subtract. Now, this is going to be tough for all of you to sit with a calculator all day long, but give it a good shot. If you come up with a negative number, by the way, uh, <laughs> I got some bad news for you. Okay, you got it? Subtract. Subtract. You got it? Okay, you got the difference there? Do you realize that the difference that you have there is what all the insurance companies of America are banking on as far as how long you're going to live? Okay, you got the difference? It's pretty depressing back in the back there, I see. <laughs> now the question is that you need to wrestle with, check this out for a moment, listen up. Do you realize that the difference that you have there, that you've got in front of you, is all the time that you have left possibly to do something about how you're going to spend eternity? Not only where you'll spend it, but how you'll spend it. The quality of life that you'll have, the position that you'll be in, the responsibilities that you have, that's all the time that you have left. According to the statistics of the insurance companies of America, obviously God has a plan for each one of us, and it may vary from that, but that's what they're banking on. That is all the time that you and I have left to determine where you'll be and what you'll be doing. Interesting, isn't it? How many of you are in the process of, uh, how many of you are in a pension fund? Any kind of pension program? Pension program. Let me ask you a question. What is the easiest way to fund a pension program? When's the best time to start? What? When you're younger. Soon. Yeah. If you're not in one yet, and you're looking at that going, real quick. But the reality of it is that the best time, any financial planner will tell you, the best time and the easiest way to plan for the future is to start when you're younger. Why? Because of time and because of consistency. The time and consistency principle of money, if you start today, if a person starts when they're 20 years old to save for, quote, their retirement, it's going to be a lot easier for them and much more attainable for them to start then to save for what quality of life, follow me? what quality of life that they want to enjoy in their retirement years. The later that you begin, the less time that you have, the more unrealistic it becomes for you to be able to save to enjoy that same quality that this person at 20 may want to enjoy. If you start when you're 20, if you start when you're 50, there's going to be a drastic difference in the quality of your retirement if all you have is X amount of resources available to set aside for that above what you need to live on a, on a daily basis. Do you follow what I'm saying? So why is it that it be, it's not logical for us to carry that same thought process through to our spiritual life that says, you know what? I look at that and think it would seem that the same principle should hold true. If I'm going to enjoy a quality of life then the best thing probably would be to do is live a consistent life 
works that's pleasing to God subsequent to salvation. Does that make sense? Why does it make sense in pension programs? You'd think it would make sense as we take a look at this. I believe that our understanding or misunderstanding of this truth is going to affect every decision that we make. How are you preparing for the future? How are you preparing for the future? I'm convinced that if we knew what the future was all about, then it would change the way that we live today. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, therefore keep watch because you don't know what day your Lord will, will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when we do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. The question is, how many of you in here have suffered the consequences of what we would call mistaken judgment? Or better yet, have you ever done something to later live to regret it? How many of you have done something to later live to regret it? Huh? All right. Good. Now, here is probably, let me ask, this is probably the dumbest question. This is like journalism 101. I think this is the first question that they teach a journalist. They go and, okay, you did something you live to regret. You know what my first question is going to be to you? If you had it all over again, knowing what you know today, would you have done anything differently? It's like, here's what I thought of. Here's what I thought of. Good illustration. Ben Johnson. The typical journalistic approach to Ben Johnson's problem. Ben, now that you've totally humiliated yourself, your family and your country before the entire world and have lost everything you've worked hard for over this past several years, would you do anything differently if you had to do it all over again today? You know, right at that point, if you're Ben Johnson, you want to sit there and go, you know, get a mirror out, take a look at yourself real close and say, do I look as dumb as you must think I am? And that would be the same question. Journalism 101, you live to do something, I mean, you regretted something, you live to regret it, and I ask you, if you had to do it all over again, would you do the same thing? That's like the absolute most insulting question I could ask you because it means that you are dumber now than you were then. <laughs> because you'd do it all over again. I mean, it's like, here's, I mean, a, this is great. A costly mistake, the paper has. Let's see, a contract worth $225,000, a potential loss of a contract worth $2.4 million uh, for a sportswear company, a uh, contract worth $500,000 for a track meet on October 8th, which he is no longer invited to run at, a uh, contract, the terms were not disclosed, a Canadian firm contract, all, contra all contracts, Canada, this is good, all contracts are to quietly expire. <laughs> In fact, one company is considering suing him for $3 million. So we go to Ben and we ask Ben, Ben. <laughs> ben, Ben, Ben. You know, and I'm assuming at this point he's guilty, which I maybe shouldn't do because, but just for the sake of illustration. Would you do anything differently today? Now, come on. Would you do anything differently today? I would certainly hope so. He'd be an absolute idiot. That would be like if I would come to you and I could guarantee you that, did you see when the hurricane was going through like Cancun and places like that? Who are the people that were the most absolutely incredible people that they interviewed? 
The terse. Which ones? The ones that weren't there yet. But we're going to go anyway. We've been planning this trip for a year now, and we've got our tickets, and we're going to go, and we're going to, you know, weather it out. And you're thinking, all these people on the island are going, I want to get out of there. And these people are sitting in New York going, well, I don't care. You know, me and the missus, we've been saving for about, you know, 10 years now, and this is the trip we've been waiting for, and I don't care, hurricane, no hurricane. We're going to go 200 mile winds. That's okay. And you're going, these have got to be the dumbest people. I, I, they must, like, the, the reporters walk through airports, and there's, like, a sign, you know, Pick me, I'm the dumbest person that you can interview. And, and I sit there and go, if I could guarantee you today that your house next week is going to be destroyed by a major earthquake, I mean, I could guarantee you there's no reason to doubt it, that it's going to be destroyed by an earthquake, it would be destroyed by a fire, uh, it would be destroyed by some other means, a hurricane, whatever it is, it's going to be destroyed. And I can guarantee you in a week that it's going to be destroyed. No questions about it. And then I came to you and said, I've got somebody who wants to buy your house cash today. <laughs> now let me ask you something. Would you sell that house? I mean, you had no reason to doubt that, that what I said was true. You'd have no reason to doubt what I said is true. Would you sell your house? Huh? What's the price? <laughs> I saw you at the airport. I did. No. I was you. I knew I saw her somewhere before. What is the price? Okay, let's carry that logic out one more step, okay? You're going to get on an airplane. Maybe this will be better. And this plane, I guarantee you this plane is going to crash and burn. There'll be no survivors. Would you get on? Would you get on the plane? Well, it just depends on how much I pay for the ticket. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, how much insurance we got? That'll be good. We'll really enjoy that. Would you get on the plane? If you had stock, and somebody could have told you last year that the stock market was going to crash and burn, and 500 points it was going to drop, maybe 1,000 points it was going to drop, and you knew it was going to happen three days from now, would you sell the stock that you had today? Oh, I know. How much? No. Does it matter at that point? If you were going to lose everything and you could just get something out of it, wouldn't it be better to get something than nothing? Regardless of what you paid for it. You want to get something out of it, right? Well, is this too, is this like too complicated? No, this isn't right. This isn't too complicated. I mean, I, I go through this and I think that, okay, if you know about the future, if you would know absolutely with certainty about the future, would it modify how you live today? Without any question. I mean, a simple illustration in business. A lot of times you'll call a customer and you'll say, will you, uh, will you send us some money that you owe us? You owe us some money, will you send us some money? This is maybe on a Friday. And they say, you can come and you can pick up a check on Monday. So Friday you're sitting there and you've got a lot of payables that need to go out. And you're wrestling with, okay, if we get this money on Monday, we can pay these bills on Friday. And the person that I ask, I have no reason to doubt, every time that they told me that I'd get a check, I got a check. You know what I do? I sign all those checks. I mail those checks out on Friday based on the fact that I'm going to pick up that check on Monday because I have no reason to doubt, because I have no reason to doubt that I'll get the check Monday. 
Now, if it's from a, you know, if somebody who's a liar and an idiot is going to tell me that on Monday I'm going to get the check, and that every time they've told me that I've never seen one, then I would be an idiot for writing checks on Friday to cover things that I know I'm not going to get paid for. Does that make sense? All right, now follow this through. If God Himself has taken the time to tell you and I about what the future holds for each one of us, He is not a lunatic. He is not an idiot. We have no reason to doubt His Word. Everything that He has said to this date has come true and will continue to come true. I have no reason to doubt the accuracy of the Word of God and anything that He's ever told me up to this point. I have never been able to prove Him wrong. If He has taken the time to tell us what the future holds for each one of us, would it not then, let's carry this out a step further, would it not then be logical to assume that it should modify our behavior today. Does that sound logical? It does to me. If you were absolutely guaranteed of the future, you would modify your performance today. I am convinced of that without a shadow of a doubt. I want to go through some things this morning that are going to be kind of a review they're the kind of questions that sometimes I'm amazed that people ask, especially in a group of people that are supposed to be knowledgeable, who have access to the Bible, who can get these questions answered. But there are many people who ask these questions and don't really have answers for them. Do you know for certain what happens to people after they die? Do you know what will happen to you after you die? See, it's one thing to know what this book teaches as it applies kind of in general terms, but it's another thing to understand how it applies to you and to me. Do you know what will happen to you? Let's personalize this. Do you know as you sit here this morning what will happen to you after you die? And do you know what you can do today that will affect what you experience then? Those are the questions that we've got to address as we go through a series that deals with rewards. Do you know, sitting here this morning, what will happen to you? You know what it is? There's a generalization. Um, it's like... People on the East Coast, how many of you lived on the East Coast at some point in time? East Coast. East Coast, does the East Coast have like a great stereotype of what happens in Southern California? See, let me give you an exa example. The East Coast believes by what they see at Laker games <laughs> and what they see parked in the, lake, in the forum parking lot. They believe, trust me, I've been there, I know. They believe that that is Southern California. You follow me? Everyone in Southern California makes six-figure incomes, sits next to celebrities at the Laker game, drives very expensive automobiles, European automobiles. I mean, everybody in Southern California does that. Everyone hangs out at the beach. Everybody wears a size five or seven ladies. <laughs> I mean, that's everyone that lives in Southern California. And if you ask anybody on the East Coast, that's exactly what they think of Southern California. Well, that may be true of Irvine. <laughs> but, just kidding. But is it true of Southern California? Huh? I mean, is everybody in here making six-figure income? Raise your hand. That's it. Does everybody here make six-figure incomes? Everybody in here drives expensive automobiles. Everybody in here sits and, you know, Laker games with celebrities. I mean, that's everybody in here, right? Wrong. That's wrong, right? 
I mean, that's a, stere that's, that's a stereotype, and there's a danger to stereotypical thinking. And you know what it is? We carry that same stereotypes into what we believe God teaches about heaven in the Bible. We believe that heaven will be some classless state where everybody will be the same, everybody will have equal responsibilities, everybody's mansion will be the same size, because it would really bug me to think that your mansion's bigger than mine, and I know that that kind of attitude's not going to exist in heaven. So the way God's going to deal with that is, He's going to make sure all of us are equally happy because we don't want to be discontent in heaven. That wouldn't be heaven. That's here. <laughs> so the problem is that we just think that's the case in heaven. Well, that's not necessarily true. Let's go through a couple quick things here. And I believe that you're going to find that this is true of everybody in here. Life and death. God created man with a spirit, soul, and a body. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us, this is true, that God created us with spirit, soul, and body. Okay? You follow that? It's going to be some basics, but we need to go through it. Okay? Physical death separates soul and spirit. Jesus said, and cried out again in a loud voice. He gave up His spirit. He called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When He had said this, He breathed His last. Okay? His spirit and his soul were separated from his body. We know that. Joseph of Arimathea went and got the body. They took the body. They put it in the tomb. But nowhere in the Word of God will you find that Jesus' existence ceased at that time. The Bible does not teach annihilation. It does not teach that the moment you die that you no longer exist. And, that, you know, and the people that do that, they'll tell you, well, you don't remember what it was like before you were born, so that's exactly what it must be like after you die. That's an illogical conclusion based on the fact that they don't know what it was like before that, and it's not logical to carry it to that conclusion. So, spirit and soul are separated from our physical body at the time that we die. We know that's the case. And we also know that Jesus did not cease to exist at that point. Now the problem is that the Lord God commanded the man and said, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden. That there is spiritual death that separates man from God. The problem is all of us are born spiritually dead, though physically alive. The Bible teaches that. It teaches that in 1 John 5.11 and 12. Uh, said, and this is the witness or the record of this, that God has given us eternal life, that this life is in His Son. Follow closely. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. There's only two tracks that we all are on. Even though all of us in here, and it's debatable as I look around, are physically alive. <laughs> and you may want to check your neighbor's pulse. The, the reality of it is, though all of us are physically alive, some of us may be spiritually dead. Okay? One or the other. You're one or the other. You have the Son. You don't have the Son. You're not contemplating whether you should accept Christ to trust in Him. It doesn't matter. While you're contemplating, you're dead. You're one or the other. There is no other teaching in the Bible that would allow for in-betweens. There are no fence-sitters. You're alive or you're dead. Okay? So this is agenda for everybody that's here. There will be life on earth. You have physical death. You will go into what is called a standby. We'll talk about that. There will be resurrection, there will be judgment, and then there will be eternity. The Bible is very clear, regardless of what track you are. Track number one, for example, are going to be those who are still spiritually dead. 
Track number one, you're still spiritually dead, although you have life on earth and you'll all die physically. Every one of us are in the same category as far as physical life is concerned and death. But you're on one track or the other. You are in Christ or you're not in Christ. And at the moment of physical death, then everything changes. You're in one camp or the other. All right, you follow me? Okay, camp number one. Stand by. Camp number one are those who have not put their faith in, in Christ yet. They're thinking about it. They're wrestling with it. It still doesn't make any sense to them. If they die today, the Bible teaches, Jesus himself taught, that you'll go in, into the camp one standby. Camp one standby is the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called to him and said, I am in agony in this fire. If you are in track one and you've never put your faith in Christ and somebody that you may know is in that situation, very clearly you can tell them that if you died today, you're going to hell. You don't say it out of contempt. You don't say it out of uh, lack of love. You say it because you love them dearly, but Jesus taught it very clearly that at the moment of death, you're going either track one or track two. There's no different. Uh, there's no track three. There's no limbo. There's no maybes. There's nothing. I mean, you're there or you're here. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Today, for those of us who are in track two that have put our faith and trust in Christ, I can say with an absolute certainty that if I died today, that I'm in track two and I can't wait to see the Lord. It is the most arrogant statement to say to someone who doesn't know where they're at. Because they'll wrestle with, well, how can you be sure of that? How do you know? I mean, what do you have to do? And you know what you do? It goes back to the very premise that we started with, and that is you simply put your faith and trust in who Jesus Christ is and what He said that He did. And because of His Word, I'm guaranteed that I'm going to see Him face to face. Not from anything that I did. Not by the way that even I live my life. Don't misunderstand. At this point, we're still just talking about where we're going to go. Track number one, there will be a day when all of us, don't, don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice, will come out, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Track number one, even though they're in hell, there will be a day where they too will be resurrected along with those who have trusted in Christ. And it says, listen, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The Bible teaches that all of us, whether we trust in Christ or not, will be resurrected one day. And that resurrection will lead us to this next one, and that is judgment. Those who are in tract one, those who are in tract one, says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. There will be a day where every one of us, whether we're in track one or in track two, will be judged before God. For those who have trusted Christ in track two, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What is he saying? He's saying that you and I, I don't know what you think about judgment, but the Bible is very clear that you and I, every one of us, and the Bible is clear also that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is, is Lord to the glory of God. 
There will be a day where every one of us are going to bend our knee and praise God for who Jesus Christ is. And you know what the problem is? The problem is for those who are in track one, it's going to be too late to change their destiny for eternity. So as I talk with people who have never accepted the Lord, have never put their faith in Christ, I say one day you're going to praise Him, you're going to praise His name to the glory of God despite what you think today. The problem is that there will be no benefit for you on that day. It will be a very sad day for a lot of people. But we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you realize that you and I are going to, if you think about it, if eternity is forever, which eternity seems to be to me, so time's not an issue. Jesus isn't going to be pressed for time. He's not going to be going, well, you know, I've got several other appointments here. The reality of it is that you and I, all of us, as we're judged, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And, and to be judged for what? For what we've done. What we've done in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We persuade men. Why does He persuade men? Because the judgment of Christ is to be something to be feared for all believers because it is a day that we're going to give an account for everything that we did while we're still in the body. It's a fearful thing to be judged according to what we've been doing. And then the final thing is eternity. Track one, each person was judged according to what he has done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible teaches that hell is not everlasting. Hell is not eternal. But the lake of fire is. You know, the cults will rip you apart if you tell them that hell is for eternity. It is not. The Bible doesn't teach it. Jesus never taught it. Jesus taught very simply this, that there would be a day when hell was tossed into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake as well. Those who are in track two, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of what? Each man's works. Each man's performance. Not each man's position. You're already in track two. That's already a given. God's not dealing with where you're going to spend eternity. He's dealing with how you're going to be judged according to what you've done. It says, if what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Let me just ask you some questions. What does God want you to do? What does God want you to know from his portrayal of the future? If we are going to modify our performance today based on what God teaches tomorrow, then obviously God wants us to know something. Follow me? What does he want you to know? Number one, our life on earth will determine our eternal situation. The Bible is very clear. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Folks, let me just get this as clear as I can. You've got one life to live. You know what I mean? And the, the uh, commercial camps on that. You know, you got one life to live. You know, live it with gusto or whatever that beer commercial is. But see, they recognize that. You've got one life to live. The Bible is very clear. It's the only life you've got. You're not going to come back again if you blow it this time, as a lot of uh, Eastern religions would teach. To try and try and try and do it right and do it again. The Bible, as we know it, teaches very simply this. You've got one life to live, and then you face judgment. So what you do here now is going to determine your eternal situation. Number two. Your faith on earth 
will determine your eternal salvation. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Your faith will determine your eternal salvation. This one life that you live is going to determine your eternal situation. And the last thing is this, and that is that your works on earth will determine your eternal compensation. For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. Behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what He has done. Our works on earth will determine our eternal compensation. Let me ask you a question. It's one that we have to ask as we go through it, and it's one that we need to deal with. But the question is, there's two tracks. You're in one or the other. The Bible is pretty clear on that. There's no third one. Our life here on earth is going to determine our eternal situation. And just as for people that live on the East Coast that look at the stereotypes of Southern California, there is a diversity of experience within Southern California despite stereotypical thinking. And there is a diversity of situations, at least two, of where you and I will spend eternity. That's it. You will either spend eternity in track one, as physical death separates you from your body, or you'll spend it in track two. And there are totally separate destinations for what's going on. Before we can even talk about rewards, before we can talk about compensation, you need to know, as you sit here today, without question, if I die today, I know for sure I'm on track two. See, because if you're not, the rest of the series doesn't apply to you. God doesn't care all the philanthropic things that you do. He doesn't care about all the great works that you may accomplish. He doesn't care about how nice you are to your neighbor and all the things that you may do for he or she because God looks at our eternal situation based on our faith in Christ and nothing else. It's not by works. So this morning you need to know, are you in track one or are you in track two? If you're in track two, then the rest of this series is going to make a lot of sense to you. But if you, and I don't want to avoid what the Bible teaches in the area of rewards and in works. But I don't want to take it any step further if you're in track one and start to teach you about things that are putting the cart before the horse. Where are you? Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come together and we look at these truths about what you teach about the future, it's so ironic how logical it is that if we understood for sure without any uncertainties about what tomorrow held, that it would certainly would change our performance today. God, we see it in very simple illustrations and we know it's true in our life. And yet here it is, you've taken the time to tell us of eternity and for some reason it doesn't modify our performance today. God, my prayer this morning are for those who don't know whether they would, if they died today, as they're separated from their body, what would happen to them. They're not sure. They look at this and realize that they don't have any guarantees.